Welcome to the Spinster Life Podcast. I'm here with Haley Shapley. She is the author of Strong Like Her. Welcome, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk about the way that women's bodies are viewed. I mean, there's just so much pressure still. And I can't wait to talk to you about the history of of how women have been viewed in relationship to exercise. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Well, I grew up playing a lot of sports and being active, but one thing I never really wanted to be when I was younger was stronger. It wasn't something that I put a lot of focus on. I definitely wanted to be faster and more agile and all of these other athletic attributes, but I didn't want to be bigger. You know, I really wanted to be smaller. I grew up in the 80s and 90s and time of Jane Fonda and leotards and and then the wayfish models of the 90s. Being muscular was not something that girls really aspired to be, at least in my circles. So I started strength training around 2014 or 2015. And I felt like everywhere I looked, I was seeing women lifting weights and getting involved in sports like powerlifting and CrossFit and American Ninja Warrior. And I started to wonder how that had evolved and whether there were a lot of other points in history where women had really pursued physical strength. And so I started to read about the history of fitness, and I found that there was very little content in the books that I was reading about women. So I knew that there had to be stories of women who had been pushing their athletic potential since the beginning of time. And I set out to uncover and tell those stories through this book. That's amazing. This is not just a history book. This is also, it's got a great visual element to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It does. Yes. I was super lucky to get to work with celebrity photographer Sophie Holland to shoot portraits of modern day athletes. We have 23 athletes in there who range from a ballerina to a bodybuilder to a contortionist to a rock climber. And all of these women show different depictions of strength. They're all from different backgrounds. They come from different athletic disciplines. They have very different body types. And so I wanted to show that strength doesn't have just one look. And we also tell their stories throughout the book. So um, you get just a good cross-section of stories of how people come to strength and what they get out of it. So let's start on the history of women's fitness. Like what is kind of like the earliest recorded instances in history of a woman being fit or having any kind of input into exercise or the way her body looked in an athletic kind of sense? Yeah, great question. So I started strong like her in ancient Greece And this was not a monolith. So there were different views throughout the eras and in different geographic um, locations. But in ancient Greece, it was the Spartans who really encouraged girls to be strong. And this was primarily because they wanted to have a strong population in general. And they knew the best way to do that was to have both dads and moms who were strong and would be more likely to produce strong children. But they were a bit of an anomaly in ancient Greece because Athenians, for example, did not subscribe to this idea. 
And the girls there typically did not have the opportunity to swim and jump and compete the way their counterparts did in other city states. But there are, or there is evidence of athletic competitions for girls only that happened in ancient times. And I also tell the story in the book of the first female to win the Olympics. She was actually able to compete through a loophole in the chariot race because she was the owner of the horses. And at the time, it was the horse owner who won the medal because the horses were horses and the The person (laughs) driving the chariot was actually a slave. And so she was able to find a way in. She won back to back and her name is inscribed in the temple. And she was very proud of that accomplishment. So there have been women competing in athletic activities from the beginning of time. That's different than what I thought because I studied a little bit of art history and you always see statues of men and they talk about how the ancient cultures celebrated the beauty of men's bodies, but not so much women's. So it's very interesting to hear that women's bodies were also appreciated and viewed as as strong. Yes. And again, this is only in some, some areas. And I think one point that I make is that I, I really combed the resources available to find these stories of girls and women who were getting to compete at this time. And there is a lot of documented history about men, and there is very, very little on women. And so it really is, I think I liken it to like one pixel on a TV screen in a sports bar. Like it's very small, but it existed. Um, And so I think it's important to tell those stories, but we should remember in context for sure that men had a lot more opportunities and certainly were considered you know, their athleticism was considered paramount um, at the time. Yeah. And how long did this continue where men were considered the strong athletic ones and women were not? Probably until today, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Honestly, you know, there are different eras throughout history and, and there are times when it's waxed and waned in terms of women who could compete. But I don't think that we have ever really reached a point where women's physical fitness was considered on par with men's. So when was the rise of the workout and fitness culture? Yeah, I think there are a couple of different points in history that we could talk about. The first really important one is the Industrial Revolution. So before that, most people in North America and Europe lived in rural communities They grew their own food, they sewed their own clothes, they crafted their own furniture, and living this kind of life was physically demanding. So both men and women were really farm strong because they had to be. But then as machines came along and did the tasks that people had once done in a fraction of the time, it created leisure time. So now people had more time on their hands and they were feeling more sedentary And so this gave rise both to the idea of exercising for recreation and watching other people play sports as a spectator. Oh, yeah. Very. I didn't even think of that, that if you have everybody working as hard as they possibly can, very physically, not only is no one going to want to exercise, but no one's going to want to exercise as a job. That's not fitness isn't going to be part of their job. Well, they didn't have free time, you know, to really to go in the evenings and watch a boxing match or a pedestrian walk, which is pedestrianism is a sport that rose out of this sudden leisure time. And it involved walking long distances. 
sometimes in like a bar where they would just walk around and compete head to head with somebody, or sometimes they'd compete against themselves walking from point A to point B. It took a lot of different forms, but people started watching this and betting on it. And it became this thing that didn't exist before when people were very busy just tending to the tasks of daily life. Yeah. Also, you said farm strong. And I think that's interesting because I've heard that as a criticism of some movies, that they're showing characters that are very muscular and they have very defined muscles because they are working out in a way to get those muscles to be defined. But farm strong, you were just, you wanted to just be able to do the tasks that you needed to do. And you weren't necessarily focused on the form and the way you looked. Right. Yeah. And I mean, still today, like there are a lot of different types of working out. And sometimes in the strength community, you'll see divisions between people based off of what their ultimate goal is. Because if you are powerlifting versus Olympic weightlifting versus doing CrossFit versus bodybuilding versus competing in strongman competitions, these are all ultimately people who are working to be stronger, but it does produce different body types. And some are some sports are more and less focused on the aesthetics at the end of it. So still today, we see those kind of divisions. But in general, yes, when you were just working out to get food on the table and to keep the house warm and all of that, you were probably not as concerned with um, how that looked. Right. You weren't worried about a six pack. You were just worried about surviving. I would imagine, you know, I wasn't around <laughs> back then, but I am guessing that yes, they were, they had um, yeah. other things on their mind than the six pack, which, you know, we do see an admiration of that all the way back through ancient time. You, you know, you were talking about studying ancient art and we do see those statues and that was yeah. um, a figure that was admired. But I, in the 1800s, that was not a goal of, I think, the everyday person. So the Industrial Revolution happened. People had more free time. People are finding that they are just sitting and they're feeling awful and they don't like the way they look. Um, so what was the progression from just daily living tasks to a fitness culture? Yeah, so I think... Um it evolved differently for men versus women. For a lot of history, masculinity has been associated with strength and muscle, while femininity has been associated with frailty. So the more in vogue it was for men to be strong, the more in vogue it was for women to be weak. And we see this playing out during the Victorian era, which is that post-industrial revolution time. You know, during this this time, the predominant idea was one of separate spheres for men and women. So a man's area was public life, work, money, politics, strength, and a woman's area was domestic life, child rearing, household duties, morality. And this didn't leave as much room for fitness for women. But it is important to note that these views, they, they weren't across the board. So there were plenty of people who also thought that girls and women should exercise. And colleges at the time did offer young women physical education. It was based off of the gymnasia that were in Germany and, and then kind of came over to the US. But it was a lot of working out with your body weight and some lighter implements. They like to use clubs, which we don't use a lot today, but were a workout implement. But there is no doubt that 
kind of sweating and exertion was considered unladylike. So there were real limits placed on what was proper for women to participate in. You see in the upper classes that women were really slotted into these genteel sports like tennis and croquet, um, where you could play in a nice dress and not overexert yourself. And and where actually there was just a big emphasis on fashion, and which was part of it in addition to getting a little bit of exercise. So it depended on what class you were in and where you lived in terms of what kind of exercise you had access to. But in general, we see men kind of start to go after some really physically demanding exercise because people were concerned that men were becoming too soft. And there was this um, movement called muscular Christianity that really focused on tying together a man's character with his strength. And and that's why we see um, like the YMCA became a big thing. You know, that is tying together religion and exercise. Um, Yeah. And we do see the first YWCA come about. But again, the emphasis is a little bit different in terms of what women um, could participate in. So uh, it was um, this widening, I think, of men's and women's roles during this time where, where when they were all working out on the farm, there wasn't such a big gap between the abilities of men and women. And then we see um, kind of their place in society just kind of grows farther apart during this time. Interesting. Also, that time in history, um, I know tuberculosis was a huge thing. And that actually kind of spurred the way that women were supposed to look in their facially that women were supposed to look like they had consumption that's where the red lips and the and the pale skin comes from to look more frail and to look ill was actually fashionable yes in certain circles for sure and you know you see the rest cure being very popular at this time so if women had anything ailing them they were to rest and to move less and less I read a book from the 1800s that described um, the most strenuous thing a a woman should do for exercise is to lie in a hammock. And I don't think we would consider lying in a hammock to be an exercise activity today. No. Like a rest day um, activity. But there were people who thought that just walking was actually too strenuous for for women. And I mentioned pedestrianism um, became this popular sport. and the interesting thing about pedestrianism is that it was open to a wide variety of people from different races and gender. So women were uh, became very popular in England um, in pedestrian circles and then kind of brought that over to the U.S. And so there was one eye profile named Madame Anderson. And her goal was really just to show women that like you can walk and it's good for you. It's going to bring you health and vitality and joy and you're capable of more than you're being told that you are. Um, She's like the first female fitness influencer in a way. <laughs> she might have been. And she was really funny. <laughs> she was a, a show woman for sure. So at her contests, if someone was sleeping, she would take coal and like, draw on their face and <laughs> she would sing as she was walking along the track. And during her breaks, she would have port wine and, you know, she made, she put a lot of effort into the outfits that she was wearing. And sometimes she even wore pants, which was pretty crazy. <gasps> yeah. Yes. Yes. I know. 
I know it was, <laughs> it was a lot. She was a lot. Um, and she was also really interesting because she had been divorced, which wasn't super common. And so she was, uh, she was a very independent woman, but a great um, example of somebody who went against the grain. And then a lot of women, they didn't go off and walk. She would walk for like a month at a time. And um, only one of her famous races was walking a quarter hour, sorry, quarter mile in a qu- every quarter hour for like 675 miles. So basically, like if, if it took her five minutes to walk that quarter mile, she would then have 10 minutes until she had to start walking again. And so she did this for almost a month. So the most rest she's getting is 10 minutes at a time. And then she's up and walking again. So a lot of people hear about the sport and they're like, okay, they were walking in a circle or they were walking from point A to point B, big deal. But you're not sleeping basically at all. So it took a lot of grit and you had to be able to be a polyphasic sleeper, which means you can sleep in short spurts instead of eight hours in a row, which is what I certainly need to be at my best. Me Um, too. But yeah. So anyway, uh, she's just, I think, a great example of someone who showed women what they could do. And there were others like her as well. And they were on trading cards and they had department stores would carry uh, apparel and things related to them. So they probably were the first influencers. Yeah. I did not know, A, that this sport existed. <laughs> right. And I I did not know. A, and, and I love it. And I just, I love that that's a sport. This is a sport that I can get behind. I could have, I could have been a, a pedestrian. You still could. Absolutely. Can, I could have. We that's true. We could bring it back. We could bring it we back. Could bring it back. It has evolved now into speed walking, which, you know, right. at the time they did not have these techniques that they have today. You know, the, the speed walkers have this completely down where they know exactly how to walk to so one foot's on the ground while the other is in motion and all of that. And, and the, they walk faster than I could ever run. They're incredible. But back then they didn't walk so fast. They just walked at more of a normal pace. So I do prefer the older version if I were going to compete because yeah, today it's, it's basically like running except you have to pay a lot of attention to your gait and your stride. And that's, I would definitely mess that up. Yeah, I would too. And <laughs> and they do, they have referees on the course who are looking for that and you get these warnings and it's a whole thing. So we're in the like 1800s, we're coming up in the 1900s. What was the kind of like the next big thing in fitness? Well, I cover a lot that happens in this period of time, but I think one era that I really like to focus on is the 1930s and the Great Depression and coming out of that into World War II. And a really interesting place to look at that transition is on Muscle Beach in Santa Monica. This is kind of the birth of physical culture in the US. A lot of influential fitness figures came out of this time, people who went on to create health clubs and, uh, you know, because that wasn't really a thing until until now in terms of like a gym that you belong to and there's a membership and you go there and and you lift. And on the beach was a handful of women, but they were really highly respected and they were quite influential. One in particular was Peggy Stockton, who was known as the queen of Muscle Beach. 
And she went on to write a column in Strength and Health magazine for a decade, encouraging women to strength train and giving them practical tips to do so. And so I'm not going to say it caught on with everyone and that women of the 1940s were all picking up a barbell, but the idea of lifting weights was something that was now more in the public consciousness for the average person and for the average woman particularly. And so we see that idea kind of go into hibernation after World War II. And and so there's that waxing and waning there, but I think it really kind of hit a high point in this 1930s, 1940s period. That does make sense that it would wane, you know, post-war and then men were coming back and they were supposed to adopt these more masculine roles and they were supposed to be providers. And then women, you know, were encouraged to stay home and they were encouraged to be homemakers. And, you know, there's this like Donna Reed image of a woman with a cinched in waist and she's very feminine looking and not a hair is out of place. And, and I can see how that doesn't align with bodybuilding or lifting weights. Exactly. You know, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of muscular Christianity. The wider this gap is between men and women, and the more men are encouraged to be these providers, and the more masculinity is tied in with strength, the less that women have the opportunity to then pursue things related to strength as well. So this is what happens during the 50s as the war ends. And, you know, just as you were saying, those gender norms become more more cemented and more separate from each other. How about now? Do you want to talk about how weight training and women's fitness is just, it's, it's so much more prevalent, it's encouraged and celebrated even? It is, I think. You know, in the past decade, the number of women participating in sports like powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting has really shot up. And just um, the speed at which women are breaking records and accomplishing things that were previously thought not possible has really accelerated. And I, you know, I think that there are a lot of different reasons for that. I think we can credit social media with some of it. Social media has a lot of um, drawbacks, as I think are well-documented. But one thing it's done is open up people's worlds to find like-minded individuals. And so if you are somewhere where your circle does not, does not lift weights, you can go on and find people who do. And you can kind of curate your feed to be filled with those types of people. And and the access to information is so much better now. Pudgy Stockton, back in the 30s, when she first wanted to start exercising, you know, she had been kind of an active kid. And then she graduated from high school and started working for a telephone uh, company. And she was sitting for most of the day in a sedentary job, like so many of us have. And she did not like the way she felt. So she went to the library to look for information on how she could start to exercise, and she couldn't find anything aimed at women. Um, And so her boyfriend at the time, who later became her husband, put together a program with dumbbells for her. And that's how she started. And then she got to do a handstand. And then she became the queen of Muscle Beach. And it all went from there. But it was difficult for her to even get started. Now there are so many programs online. Some are better than others, for sure. But there is a an abundance of high quality information that you can find if you're really looking for. And so I think that that's made a huge difference in women's access to strength training. So many gyms and so many other places that women can congregate and actually 
do the weightlifting and have hands-on assistance to make sure that their form is correct and all of these things that you can't really get from a book. Yeah. And because women's only gyms used to be like, you just like do like a little set of hand weights and it's, it's not focused on gaining muscle mass and it's not so much on you know, defining your muscles. Right. Yes. And, you know, there's been a rise in boutique fitness. And I think a lot of those places do still emphasize that same kind of idea in different ways. It's about having that long and lean muscle as opposed to, yes. as opposed to a short and squat muscle, I guess. I don't know what the, uh, <laughs> what the opposite It's very the, Jane Fonda. Yeah. It's very Jane Fonda. It can be very Jane Fonda. And I, and I, I understand why they play to that, but, but there are so many more places to go. And I think people have a lot of feelings about CrossFit, but it has really brought in a lot of women to the world of strength training. It has about 50-50 split in men and women who participate. And once people get exposed to the different types of strength training, then they, they might go and pursue something more specialized like the Olympic weightlifting after getting a little taste of it there. Or they might sign up for an obstacle course race that involves monkey bars and climbing a rope because that's something that they've now learned how to do. So uh, I think that has just exploded since the mid-2000s. And you're more likely to see women in your everyday life who have a little bit more muscle. And that makes a huge difference in terms of what you think is possible and what you think is even desirable or or normalized. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what is normal, what is desirable for a woman to look like. Because, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, the Jane Fonda, the long and lean. Mm -hmm. But like, let's let's really get into it because I think that's at the heart of this and kind of why women have been driven away from fitness a little bit and especially driven away from weightlifting or weight training because... You don't want to bulk up. Yes. that The bulk word, bulky, is so, uh, it's so important to talk about because it's, for one, it's this interesting concept that doesn't really have a definition that's easy to pin down. Um, but it's something that so many women are, are afraid of being because it seems to them to be unfeminine. I do think it's less of a concern today, but I've, I've heard people say that women aren't afraid at all of being bulky anymore. And I don't think that that's true. I still, hear- I don't think that's true. I don't. I, I, I go to bar classes occasionally and they do still use the words long and lean. Oh yeah. And that's why they highlight the fact that they use small weights. They use, you know, really light weights. Absolutely. And I've even heard in a strength training gym from an instructor who was teaching, um, you know, a different style of class that you know, this is a class where you won't bulk up and we're, we're standing surrounded by barbells and, and all of that. So I think it is absolutely a concept that's still out there that frightens women because they don't want to become something that they think is um, unattractive and came to this project because I started training for a bodybuilding show. And it was really interesting to me how people were reacting because a lot of people said things like, oh, that's cool, but don't lift too heavy because men won't like that. Or don't get too big because that's unattractive. Or don't lift too much because you might hurt yourself. And so it was really interesting to me how they were accepting of this hobby, of this thing that I was pursuing, but only to a point. As long as I didn't cross that invisible line to too much, 
then I I was okay. And we see this when bodybuilding first becomes a sport in the late 1970s for women, they got a lot of blowback from people and they weren't even particularly muscular at the time. It's evolved a lot since then. Um, but yeah. but those women, there's this uh, this docudrama called Pumping Iron 2 that is all about women who decide to compete in this, this competition. I think it was in the early 80s. And they talk in the movie about how people are grossed out by them. They they're grossed out to see these muscles that they didn't even realize they had on themselves because they've never built them up. And, you know, the competitors are saying like, it's, it's beautiful to see your abs, but people act like it's disgusting and that it's unfeminine. And so we have gotten away from that a bit today, for sure. I think that there's a wider variety of body types that we find acceptable or even attractive. But I think that there is still this idea that if you are pursuing muscularity on purpose, that you shouldn't push it too far. It's so interesting and enraging on so many levels. First of all, we all, women have these muscles. How is it unfeminine to display these muscles? And second of all, like, yeah, the I can't believe that people told you, you know, don't you don't hurt yourself. Don't lift too much or you hurt yourself. Like, you are training. You know a lot about this. Like, you are not going to hurt yourself because you have a team of support. You know yeah. the techniques. You know how to keep yourself safe. And those, so, I, those comments mostly came from women, which... I understand. And I will say mostly older women, I think who just did not grow up with the knowledge of how to strength train properly and and with seeing a lot of other women pursuing that. So I think it came from a place of concern, which I can understand and respect. But at the same time, (laughs) strength training is actually quite safe if you're if you use proper form and know your body's limits and all of that. Because when you're playing sports with other people, that's very unpredictable. You don't know what the other people are going to do. There's a lot more risk in that than there is in a sport that you're just doing on your own. That's in a controlled environment. Of course you can be injured, but of course, but you can be injured doing almost anything. And It would be very boring if you lived a life where you were never exposed to any kind of injury whatsoever. But I've never had a major injury from um, lifting. And so I just don't think that men hear that message as much like don't hurt yourself. And that is what annoys me about it. (laughs) Because as you mentioned, women have these muscles. They exist. And I I talk about research in the book where men and women put on muscle at the same rate if they're following a similar training plan. Now, men start with more muscle than women. So they're always going to end up with more overall if they're following a similar training plan. But the rate at which men and women can build their muscle is no different, which means that our muscles are meant to grow the same as men's. Yeah. It's just that fewer women are pursuing that. I think that myth is floating out there that women just are physically not able to put on muscle. Right. That is such a damaging message to send. Like you are absolutely capable and you could do it at the same rate. Yes. Uh, I also think it's a little bit enraging that women have sort of been held back from strength training 
because it is a way to strengthen your bones and it is a way to prevent osteoporosis, which is a disease that affects women more than it affects men. Absolutely. And not that these women need to be bodybuilders, but just to go up to a a set of weights and not feel afraid or not feel like this isn't for you when it absolutely is something for you. Absolutely. And you don't have to do a ton of resistance training to get those benefits um, of bone strengthening and health benefits, cardiovascular benefits. But you do have to do some type of resistance training in order to get those. And the other benefits I talk about in the book are the mental, the social, the emotional, the environmental benefits that come from strength training. These are all things that women have not necessarily had access to, and there isn't a good reason for it. And one of the stories I really like to tell in the book is how the cycling craze of the 1890s, which got so many women exercising for the first time because they, um, you know, the safety bicycle came along and it was now safe and affordable to ride a bike. And now you don't need a chaperone to go places and now we see hemlines raised because it was making it hard to pedal. And, and we see all of these changes happening because of the bicycle, which eventually leads to women getting the right to vote. Because once they got that little taste of freedom from being on a bicycle, they realized, oh, we could be going for so much more. There's no reason why we shouldn't be participating in life in, in a more direct way. And so it's something that we often think about exercise in general as kind of a frivolous pursuit that we do if you have the time. Maybe people are quite vain who who do it. But fitness impacts all aspects of our lives and everyone should have the ability to exercise in whatever way makes sense for them. And it doesn't have to be a barbell. And I I like barbells, but that doesn't mean that I think that that is the only way to work out by any means. But I do think that everyone should have access to fitness. I totally agree. And yeah, this whole exercise is frivolous deal. It is detrimental to us as a society, though, that we're more sedentary. And we're eating more processed convenience foods and and things that we can just grab and go. Women, especially like if they have children or if they're working and they have all these obligations that like they're not encouraged to make room for fitness. Yes. And and there are um, downsides to that, as we've talked about, you will miss out on on those benefits. And so I'm a fan of these trailblazers who I spotlight because they have given us the opportunity to pursue fitness today in a way that they had to really fight for back in the day. They really did. Before we move on, let's talk about butts. Oh, butts. Yes. Butts. Because when I was growing up, having a big butt was an insult. Yeah. But now having a big butt is what you should have. Right. Yes. I found out while researching this book that our cultural standards of beauty are constantly shifting and there really isn't a way for women to keep up with it. Um, So as you mentioned, butts is a great example of how quickly that shift happens because 10 years ago, the most common Google search related to butts was how to make your smaller. And today it's how to make it bigger. And you know, this is over a period of of just a decade. So 
One thing I, I want to be really careful about is not adding another bar for women to cross in terms of now you have to have a certain amount of muscle mass in addition to being lean and perfectly proportioned and all of that in order to be considered attractive. But I do hope to expand our idea of what a woman's body can look like instead of having such narrow constraints uh, around what we should be. And like you said, it's constantly changing and no one can keep up with that. You can't change your bone structure and you shouldn't shift your body composition in reaction to what everyone else looks like. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think it's, you know... It's sort of nice in a way that big butts are in now because people who naturally had that body type for so long were criticized for that. But at the same yeah. time, there are a lot of women who don't naturally have big butts. It's any butt. It's actually. <laughs> and the thing is, like, when you are, um, you know, when you're trying to become lean, like, for instance, if you are competing in bodybuilding, you want to have a big butt, but you also sort of like need to be lean. That's a very hard thing to do because as you're dropping body fat, the butt has a lot of fat in it. And and so it's very difficult to build that butt up while keeping your waist small if you don't sort of like naturally already have that shape to you. And so expecting all women to fit into that extreme at, is as difficult as expecting all women to be rail thin, because that is also something that's very difficult to achieve if you don't already naturally have that shape. So yeah, you, you can't in a lifetime, you will never hit all of the trends. And I wouldn't advise chasing them because it is a no. losing battle. No, and it is a, a bit messed up that we have trends for bodies. Yeah. Bodies are what they are. They are a vessel that allows you to do things that you love, that allows you to experience life. Like they're not a fashion statement. Right. I, First and foremost, they're not a fashion statement. I guess they do end up as fashion statements. If your body type comes into fashion at some point. And yeah, I, I think that it is great that we've shifted to embracing this one sort of beauty standard that we didn't have for so long. But kind of at the expense of everything else. Like it's, you can't spot tone and you can't like sculpt this big butt in this tiny waist. If you're not already working with that, you can't just make that happen without a lot of effort and possibly damage to yourself. Maybe plastic surgery that's very expensive and is very hard to recover from all at the expense of uh, a fashion. Exactly. Yeah, I think I was maybe not surprised to find out how quickly body standards change because I knew that they did, but I was surprised to find out how fast they change and how much they yeah. are like fashion, really, where it is like in today, out tomorrow, then it comes back around in 10 years or whatever. And facial attractiveness does not really do the same thing. So, you know, if you were transported back into the Renaissance era, you would probably recognize the people they consider attractive by face as being similar to the people that we consider attractive today. But the body type would be completely different. And you would have no yeah. idea who was considered um, the most desirable because that is just constantly shifting. That's just so crazy. I'm glad, though, that I can embrace my big thighs and my big butt because I just remember when I was younger, loathing the sight of them. And now I'm like, all right, okay. Oh, my gosh. Same. You're looking, you're looking just feeling really comfortable in my body. And I guess that comes with age as well and living through all of these changes in what 
a, a beautiful body looks like. That's true. Yeah. The more you see that cycle just going, the more you realize, ah, whatever I've got, got what I've got. And yeah, that's, that's where and I'm going to embrace it. Yeah. I had big thighs when I was growing up. I, I still remember being in elementary school, junior high, you know, post puberty and just being like, why are my, my thighs so big? But I had a very like, you know, I had very lean arms and I spent a lot of time worrying about that, that of course I wish I could take back and focus my yeah. mental effort and on other anything things. else. Yeah. Yes. But <laughs> this is common. I have talked to so many women who feel the same way. And I actually have um, a free runner, parkour athlete in the book named um, Sydney Olson, who has a quote about how she started noticing her legs were bigger than everybody else's around sixth grade. But over time, she found out her legs are what give her her power. And I love that because now she does all these flips and really cool things where she needs that quad strength and she needs, you know, to have uh, strong hamstrings and glutes to be able to do her sport. And she's learned that that's what makes her who she is. It's not a, a downfall. And I just think that reframing is so important and something that so many of us can relate to. Yeah. Can you tell us about another female athlete that you really admire, like your favorite athlete? female athlete of all time? Ooh, well, picking a favorite female athlete of all time, I think would be like picking my favorite child. Um, (laughs) I don't have children, but if I did, I wouldn't want to pick a favorite one. But one I like to talk about is Babe Diedrichsen. And a lot of people know her as the greatest female athlete of all time because she was good at so many different things. Um, but I like Babe because she was complicated. She's not she's not necessarily the heroine that that is always easy to root for. But I think that's great because so often women are expected to be like all good. And, you know, it goes back to the separate spheres thing where women were in charge of morality. Women should be, should be one way. And we're all complicated. Like we all have good and bad traits, right? So Babe grew up in Texas in the 1910s and 20s, and she was unruly. You know, she was the kind of kid who was running around barefoot, caked in mud, playing with the boys. She was a bit loud. She was a bit rude. Her neighbors didn't love her. She thought girls' hobbies were really boring. She was not into hopscotch or jacks or playing with dolls or anything like that. And so she was extremely competitive, but she was good at everything she tried. Today, she's best known for golf, which she played later in life, but she was an All-American in basketball for three years in a row. She had uh, the world record for the longest throw of a baseball by a woman. And she was quite accomplished in diving, roller skating, bowling, tennis, handball, volleyball, cycling, boxing, you name it. If she tried it, she was good. And so she went to the Olympics in 1932 and competed in track and field where she won three medals in hurdles, javelin, and high jump. And it's pretty notable to be good at both track and field. Most people, of course, if you're competing in the decathlon or or something with multiple events, you'll do both. But those people would not be likely to medal in those individual events because they're very different. But Babe was just that good. And she knew how to promote herself. So she got a lot of press coverage, but it was not often kind coverage 
because Babe didn't have those soft curves that tended to make muscularity more acceptable for women. Um, you know, the, the body type at the time, we're talking about body types, was to be kind of soft and, and curvy. And she had a sharp, angular face. A reporter described her as an ugly duckling with a hatchet face. Um, another said, Yikes. yeah, they, oh gosh, the one called her hawk nosed and hard bitten. And I mean, the things that they said about her, like for one, why it's not relevant to right. her career as an athlete. And it's just mean spirited, really. Yeah. Like other male athletes, they don't have their looks called out when they're being talked about. They just talk about their achievements while she is battling to have her achievements recognized over her looks right which and it was just she didn't she didn't care about she wanted to compete and she wanted to succeed and she wanted to move yes she did not care but it did start to get to her a little bit another reporter said that it would be better if she stayed at home and got prettied up and waited for the phone to ring and these kind of criticisms started to wear down on her because because they would wear down on anyone, I think, you know, although she was so competitive, yeah. she didn't like this implication that, you know, that she was unwanted, basically. And at the heart of these criticisms was uh, her seeming indifference to men. This really rattled people at the time. They were like, why isn't this woman married? Why doesn't she want to be married? Why doesn't she seem to talk about boyfriends and whatever? And she was incredibly busy, like going to all these athletic competitions, training and all of that. Um, right. And she was still young at the time as well. She was in her 20s. So it was a lot, a lot for someone to to take on. But another reason that she got criticized is because she she came across as quite masculine in her approach to sporting. So she would talk trash before competitions. She would try to get <laughs> under her competitor's skin. She was not above crank calls the night before a big meet to throw someone <laughs> off their game. And I write in the book that, you know, we can argue about whether this is sportsmanlike. And I think that that is a fine conversation to have. But it was always framed as whether it was ladylike, not whether mm. it was sportsmanlike. Nobody was concerned, you know, about men doing this type of thing as much it was really about yeah is she is she staying within the confines of femininity and so instead of celebrating this amazing athletic talent that she had the sports writers spent a lot of time denigrating her because she did not appear to care about whether she was ever a wife or a mother and that was just inconceivable to them. So in 1938, they did get married uh, eventually to a big guy, a big wrestler, 225 pounds, six feet tall. And the coverage changed overnight. Now she was a lovely lady who wore nylons and cooked and cared about the curtains in her home. She now had a smaller waist and bigger breasts magically. And it was all really ridiculous because her personality and measurements did not change uh, the second that that ring was slipped on her finger. The, and no. The only thing that changed was that she now fit into the societal standards of what women should aspire to grow up to do. And that is the whole reason that this podcast exists, because wife, mother, these are still kind of the default role or the pinnacle for a woman that you have a man to take care of and that you raise children and you do your duty and you have children. And 
you know, eventually she she got married, and I'm assuming because she really loved this man and she really wanted to have a life with him, and it didn't have anything to do with her curtains and her cooking skills. And I'm sure that she knew how to cook before that because diet is a huge part of being an athlete. Right. And, you know, it's really unclear why she married him, to be honest. Um, We don't know whether she married him. I don't know that it was like a great relationship. And it's it's hard to say. There are varying accounts of it. Um, And she unfortunately did pass away quite young in her mid-40s of cancer. Um, she oh. continued to be an athlete through through the end, but she didn't have children. And, and you know, I don't know if she got married because she really wanted to or if it was because she felt like it was something that she needed to do for her career. That's true. And I mean, I guess a lot of people in that time period did get married because it was the thing that you were supposed to do and not necessarily because it's what they really wanted for their lives. Right. Absolutely. And I think... Even people in this time period, I think there's less pressure yeah. to do that today, for sure, because there are more options and it's more acceptable to have all kinds of other lifestyles. But but I still think that society is structured for couples and families, and sometimes it's very difficult to operate outside of that. It absolutely is. And we tackle that a lot here on the podcast and, yeah. and throughout the things that I write that Absolutely. Whether it's accumulation of wealth, whether it's how your employers treat you, whether it's how much money you make based on how many people you have to support. There are just kind of all of these things that single people face that married people don't. Yeah. Even look at uh, fitness. You know, gyms always give discounts for couples that sign up. Yes. It's like, well, single people are paying all, well, it depends on if they have roommates and all that, but you know, they're paying their entire mortgage or rent, they're paying for all of their groceries, etc. And you know, I understand the business aspects of doing that, but it seems like those types of discounts and breaks are built in to society. And um, right. So and it's like, hey, what's wrong with you that you don't have someone to share this with? Yeah. You don't get a discount. You just have to pay <laughs> no for it. No discount for you. No tax break <laughs> for you. Just you who has no one to help you with any of these bills nothing for you. Yep. Just, just keep it on you. (laughs) You seem to be taking in strides. You're you're doing great on your own. Just (laughs) we'll just keep milking you cash cow. Well, I think that segues nicely. (laughs) Haley, please tell us a little bit about another book that you want to write. Oh my gosh. Well, I have a lot of, a lot of ideas floating around right now, but I think I was mentioning before we were on this call, uh, because this is the Spinster Life podcast, I have been telling people since I was in college that I was going to write a book about being a spinster. I remember back in college, people were like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not a spinster at 20 or whatever. And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to write about being a spinster. It's important to me. I think it's really interesting. I was planning to write it with another friend of mine who promptly got married at like the age of 23 and is married to this day. So she was not committed to the spinster No, book. to spinsterhood. No, no, not to spinsterhood or the spinster book the way I was. But um, <laughs> I do think there's, there is just so much to explore here in terms of how we treat women who choose to remain single or remain single because of circumstance. And it has evolved. It's gone through a lot of like different shifts over time that I think are interesting to look at in the same way that looking at the shifts in fitness for women has gone over time. And I 
I have a feeling that if I looked at this more closely, that I would see those shifts kind of move together a bit. Like I would imagine that the more acceptable it was for women to be single, that the more acceptable it was for them to pursue fitness. I know for certain in the Great Depression, World War II era that we were discussing with kind of Muscle Beach and the everyday woman getting that first taste of maybe being able to pursue strength training, that it was popular for women to live alone. And, you know, there was a whole movement around it about this kind of fashionable single woman who lived in an apartment and and did her own thing that then kind of went away in the same way. There's a great book called Learn to Live Alone and and Like It by Marjorie. Marjorie Hillis. Yes. Yes. Marjorie, the Marjorie Hillis book. Yes. Yeah. And, and and she was she was the she was a head of a magazine, so she just had all of this power to put this message out there. And then I, I assume some of the post-war things that we were talking about where, you know, that we had to find a purpose for the men and make them feel like they were part of society again and that they were providers had a lot to do with that downfall and that not being so popular anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a great book about her too called The Extra Woman that looks at the, and this was written just a few years ago, that looks at the that time period and, and how that all came about. So gosh, that would be an interesting to look, thing to look at as well as, as how these yes. movements intersect. Yes. And I think you're absolutely right that if you chart the fitness and single women having more freedom or women having more freedom, that you, I think they'll line up pretty well. And I think you, you had a point there about the suffragists and bicycles mm-hmm. and even I think pants and oh, yeah. Suffrage. That was a, a huge thing. Susan B. Anthony wore a bloomer dress. So it was still a dress, but it was also pants. And there was an uproar over that. And she just liked this dress because she could move around more in it. Right. Yeah, that happens a lot. There was a, a mountaineer around that same time who wore pants to climb. And there was a, it was in another country, but there was debate about whether she should be arrested for that because. Um, wearing pants was illegal. Yeah, I guess they didn't care if she wanted to climb the mountain or if she was good at it. No. It's just, yeah, and, what is she wearing while she's doing and it? And she climbed it. She she accomplished her goal. It was an incredible thing, but they were more concerned about her pants. Hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, gosh, we could have a whole another episode about clothing and women for sure because yes. you know, this comes up a lot in uh, in women's fitness, of course, because clothing was really used to keep women from participating in so many different sports um, because they just weren't able to wear the type of um, outfit that they would need to wear in order to perform the sport appropriately. Most- right. Pants or too revealing or... Yeah, most notably swimming, I think. Um, you know, women mm. were kept from learning how to swim because swimsuits were considered too risque and to swim you had to be wearing this wool skirt and a blouse with puffy sleeves and a swimming belt and a cap. And how can you? How can you swim if you were weighted down by like 10 pounds of wool? And Yeah, you couldn't. You're not going to be good at it because... The, your clothing isn't letting you be good at it. Exactly. So it kept women from wanting to learn because they were understandably afraid that they would get into the water and sink, which they were 
not incorrect about with all of that carbon. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, a, a book about fitness for women from the late 1800s. And there, the chapter on swimming is written by a man. And he got into all those clothes that women were supposed to wear to try it out. And he was like, you can't do this. This is not possible. Like women should not be wearing all this stuff. You can't swim like this. And yeah. It took um it unfortunately took a tragedy that happened in the early 1900s where several hundred women and children lost their lives because they didn't know how to swim and in addition to some other factors that um finally got swimming to be kind of considered a a pursuit that was not gendered so something that everyone should learn and municipalities started to encourage kids of all genders to swim. Anyway, but we see a lot of a lot that's related to clothing and freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're still trapped by it. You know, we're still judged very harshly on on what we wear. Yeah, there have been recent cases of that where the women's handball team from Norway, I believe, was wanted to wear shorts and they were told they had to wear bikini briefs. And it was just last year that figure skaters, female figure skaters were allowed to wear pants. I think maybe ice dancers got got that last year and women's figure skaters a few years ago. But in any case, it's been very recent that a lot of women have, you know, these uniform changes are happening. And, and then we're still seeing women criticized. There was a, a Paralympic athlete who is a track runner and and she was told her um, briefs that she was running in were too short, even though they look just like everyone else's. So there's still a lot of regulation and policing of what women wear. Yeah. The pants will set you free though. In the end, the pants will set you free. I'm a big fan of pants. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of pants. Um, please tell us where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at HaleyShapley.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Haley Shapley. Wonderful. And anything coming up that we should know about? Any events or any other happenings? Oh, good question. You know, I am still, I'm kind of emerging now as things are opening back up. And um, the book came out during the pandemic. So I did not have an opportunity to do a lot of the events that I had planned. But stay tuned um, as I'm hoping to set some more of those up. And you can grab the book online or at a bookseller near you. Um, it's available in hardcover where it has the beautiful photos that you mentioned, as well as audiobook and ebook formats. It does sound like the paper book is the way to go on this one, just to enjoy. I would say so for sure. To enjoy the photographs. I would say so for sure. Um, you know, but I do really like the audiobook version. Um, just because I enjoy listening to books now while I'm kind of in between sets at the gym, it's a great way to to pass the time. But yes, big fan of the hardcover for sure. That is true. The audiobook also, if you yeah, if you are in the middle of a workout and you want something to listen yeah, to, yeah, you're looking for that bolt of inspiration in between sets, you will find it here. You sure will. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your expertise and all of your stories. This was such a great episode. Oh, great. Uh, I really I really enjoyed this topic and we will be on the lookout too for your uh, spinster book one of these days. <laughs> uh, yes, coming to you who knows when. I've had it planned for so many years now. I just, you know, we'll keep working on it. But thank you so much for, for having me on. I've really enjoyed being here. You are welcome and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. 